You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. End of Matthew chapter 26 and the start of Matthew chapter 27. Uh, As you turn there, let me say uh, how thrilled I am to be with you. Again, I think it was two years that I was uh, last here with you. Um, Lots of new faces since then. And uh, great to be able to meet you all. Uh, We continue to pray for you over in St. Andrews. We continue to be very, very grateful for your partnership in the gospel with us. Um, Not all here will know that your own congregation planted ours um, about 12 or 13 years ago. So we remain very, very grateful to God uh, for you. Uh, David asked me to come across this morning and we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel actually since I arrived in St. Andrews two and a half years ago. So we're on the home straight now as you'll see. We've got to chapter 27 and uh, just last Sunday I was, we were looking at these verses together. So that's what I thought we'd look at this morning. So I'll, start, I'll pray and then I'll start to read from the end of chapter 26. Our great... Father in heaven, we want to praise you for the promise of your presence with us this morning. Thank you that whenever your word is taught, your spirit is present and at work. And we know that you esteem the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles before your word. And so we pray that your spirit would work to give us hearts that are receptive to you this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Starting then at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a cock crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. 
They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Well, let me start, if I may, with the observation that uh, there is something deep within us that absolutely hates, I think, the exposure of our own personal failure. I'm sure you'll be able to relate to that. Um, I was watching a young toddler the other day who made an enormous mess all over the floor somewhere, and uh, his reaction was to put his hands over his eyes like this, thinking that if he couldn't see his parents... Uh, then they couldn't see him or presumably the mess that he had just created all over the floor. The slightly older child never needs to be taught to blame others. They seem to learn very early on to say, it wasn't me, Uh, it must have been my sister. Uh, Then as we get older, we become very, very good at deceiving ourselves. Do you find you do this, that we manage to persuade ourselves that the fault lies not in us, but in other people or in the circumstances that we're facing. We say to ourselves after we've behaved in a particularly appalling way, if only they hadn't been so unreasonable, if only I hadn't been so tired. Uh, One preacher I was listening to on this subject a while back said, we cocoon ourselves in self-deception so that we don't have to face up to what we're really like. I don't know if you've seen the BAFTA-winning film, The Talented Mr. Ripley, the same guy quoted from it. It's a film from a while back now, but stars Matt Damon, uh, Jude Law, um, one or two others, I can't remember who. But the, the lead character, Tom Ripley, says in it, whatever you do, however terrible and hurtful, it all makes sense, doesn't it, in your own head. You never meet anyone who thinks that they're a bad person. He goes on, don't you want to put the past in a room, in the cellar, and lock the door, and just never go in there? Because that's what I do. Then you meet someone special, and all you want to do is toss them the key, say open up, step inside, but you can't, because it's dark, and there are demons And if anybody saw how ugly it was. Well, in our passage this morning, we meet two men. Uh, We meet the Apostle Peter and we meet Judas Iscariot. And we're invited to compare and contrast their stories. And as we do, we're going to see that they have a lot in common. They're both very good friends of Jesus. They both make huge mistakes in their dealings with Jesus. And they both regret their mistake profoundly. But that's where the similarity ends because while Peter went on to uh, write a part of God's Bible and to help to lead God's church, Judas went and hanged himself. And one of the questions we're going to have to ask this morning is why? Let me say up front then that I wish I'd um, come to you when I just preached on a slightly cheerier passage in St. Andrews. One of you asked what I was preaching on this morning, and uh, as I tried to explain what it was going to be, I thought, well, that's really not the, the most cheerful thing. I'm not expecting this morning to be comfortable listening in that sense. But I hope that it will be full of hope. Because even though in thinking about the failures of Peter and Judas, we'll be confronted with our own, and that is never easy. As we see the way that God was willing to restore, to forgive, and even then to use Peter 
so profoundly in his own service. We might think, I hope we will think, that if God is so loving and so gracious that he could find a future for someone like Peter, then he could do the same for us. Firstly, this morning, we're going to think about the trial of Peter, uh, a humbling failure. And I'm calling it a trial because Matthew intends for us, I think, to see a direct contrast between uh, the trial that Jesus himself faced before the Sanhedrin in the immediately preceding passage. In fact, the stories of Jesus and Peter have been running along side by side uh, each other through chapter 26 of the, the gospel. Back in the garden, Jesus watched and prayed. And so when he faced his trial before the whole Sanhedrin, he remained true to his father in heaven and he fearlessly proclaimed the truth as he confessed himself to be the Christ, the son of God. But while Jesus had prayed, Peter had slept and failed to pray. And so when he faces his own trial, even though it's just before a servant girl, he lied and he denied his Lord in the strongest possible terms. Uh, the trial is recorded with vivid simplicity in our passage. There are three escalating scenes. In the first, um, Peter is in the courtyard, which is where uh, of the high priest's house Jesus has been on the inside. We've been told that he was following at a distance to see what would happen to Jesus. And while he's there waiting with the guards to see what will happen, a servant girl came up to him and said, in verse 69 there, if you glance down at it, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. The literal translation is that this was one little servant girl. So it's hardly the most threatening of scenes. But obviously her question caught the attention of all the other guards around because in verse 70 we read that Peter denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. At this stage it's a, it's a pretense of ignorance rather than an outright denial or lie. But still the alarm bells are, are ringing because of that little word deny. Back in chapter 10, Peter, uh, Jesus had said to his disciples, If anyone denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. And then in um, verse 34 of chapter uh, 26 here. Jesus had used a form of this word when he told Peter, before the cock crows, you'll disown me three times. And Peter had boasted, even if I have to die for you or with you, I will never disown you. But that proud boast is already lying in tatters at his feet. Uh, John Calvin comments on this little section. Here we see that it does not take a heavy fight to break a man. Uh, my favorite comment from one of the commentators comes from the guy who pointed out that when Peter protested that he would never deny Jesus, he probably had in mind that he would never deny him before an angry mob like the one that had come to Gethsemane or before a, a serious court like the Sanhedrin or in some other sort of heroic setting. What he probably never thought of was about a trial in this sort of trivial circumstance before a little servant girl. And the writer says, don't most of our tests of discipleship occur in such unlikely circumstances? 
And I would want to add, and don't we fail just as easily? By the time of the second scene, Peter has moved further away from Jesus, both literally and symbolically. Verse 71, he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. It's a, it's a slightly more public accusation this time. Her statement is addressed to the crowd rather than just to Peter. And so the intensity of his denial ratchets up as well. In verse 72, he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man, he said. And so feigned ignorance has become sworn denial. It's just the tiniest of details, but back in chapter 5, Jesus had forbidden his disciples from swearing oaths, like this one that Peter's doing. But all that excitement back in those days about this glorious new kingdom of truthfulness, where people would mean what they said, that all just seems like a very long time ago by now. Verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Uh, Apparently, the people of Jerusalem used to mock the northerners uh, from Peter's neck of the woods for not being able to speak properly. Uh, Apparently, the, the pronunciation of their consonants was slovenly. That's what we're we're told in the books. I think it's better that I don't comment about people's accents in these, these parts. But what it meant here was that Peter really did have nowhere to hide because every time he opened his mouth, he gave himself away. But that didn't stop him. As you glance down to verse uh, 74, in the original, that word himself doesn't appear Here it says, then he began to call down curses on himself. It just says, then he began to call down curses. And lots of commentators now think that he wasn't calling down curses on himself at all, but on Jesus. And so this was the most vehement and public denunciation of Jesus imaginable. As Peter, I believe, cursed him. And said, I don't know the man. I used to think that the difference between Peter and Judas's offenses against Jesus was that Judas's was somehow more serious. It was a, a higher level thing. And that's why his story ended so tragically. But as I've studied it afresh this time around, I've been persuaded that Peter's mistake was as serious as it gets. It was hellish. Indeed, the magnitude of Peter's crime is only amplified when we consider the size of the privilege that he had enjoyed. We know that of those to whom much has been given, much more will be demanded. And Peter was a part of Jesus' inner core of disciples. Matthew 10 even makes a point of calling him the first disciple. And it's not just saying the first in order of time, but that he had some sort of priority. Uh, Peter had been an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty at the time of the transfiguration. He'd heard the voice of God speak from heaven to proclaim Jesus as God's son. He'd been enabled by Jesus personally to walk on water towards Jesus. He'd 
had his eyes opened by God so that when Peter asked, but uh, when Jesus asked him, but who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So we can say with confidence that there have been very few in history who had enjoyed the sort of spiritual privilege of Peter. And so there have been very, there have been very few too who have uh, protested their loyalty quite so loudly. And so there have been very few who have fallen from a greater height. So here is my question. Why do you think did Peter tell this story to other people? It's only occurred to me uh, just in the last couple of weeks that Peter was the only disciple who was there when he denied Jesus in this way. By this stage, everyone else had run. So you could say that this was a, a crime without Christian witnesses. So why didn't he just keep it to himself and carry on? I think that's what I'd have done. Uh, We all hate having our failures exposed in public. And yet this account of his denial ends up in all four Gospels. That can only be because Peter himself told the story openly, publicly, and I guess repeatedly. So why would he have done that? I want to suggest two reasons by way of application for this first point. And the first is that Peter wanted to warn us against presumption. Uh, We may be surprised to discover that someone who had been trained intensively by Jesus himself could fall in such dramatic fashion. But in the failure of one as gifted and privileged as Peter is a great lesson for any disciple. It can be tempting sometimes to think that the early days of our Christian life are the times when we might make some big mistakes, uh, but that somehow as we move on as disciples, we graduate to a stage where we're only ever capable of of subtle and respectable sins. Uh, It can lead us to trust in ourselves and the teaching we've received and the experiences we've had, and just to take it for granted that we're safe spiritually. And Peter would want to say that is a lie, that we're never more than God by his grace is enabling us to be at any one time, that if we're standing firm, we should be thanking God for his kindness to us, that we should be actively casting ourselves upon his grace moment by moment to keep us, because if we think we are standing firm, we need to be careful lest we fall. Uh, The challenge may come from the most unexpected source, but it will come because our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, I remember the church leader who was far and away the most famous Christian minister in the country when I was uh, an undergraduate. Uh, He was in high demand as a speaker at conferences and um, CU missions up and down the country. I read all of his books. I listened to all of his sermons. Back in those days, you used to have to write off on paper, which was this thing we used to use, uh, and you'd send money and you'd receive a cassette through the post. Do you remember cassettes? That was the only way you could listen to someone else's sermons in those days. I worked through them by the bucket load. I've still got some somewhere on the loft. I even came close to joining this guy's staff team at church. But within just a few months, he'd left his wife and dropped out of Christian ministry altogether. 
Uh, more recently, there's been the much-publicized fall of Mark Driscoll. Just a few years ago, he was um, being touted as the next Billy Graham. He was flown business class all over the world and put up in the, the finest hotels so that he could speak at conferences uh, before resigning in disgrace, I think it was last year. And Peter would say, don't be surprised. And he would say, if you think it couldn't happen to me or to you or to your Christian hero, then you are utterly deluded. And Peter told the story of that night as a way of guarding us against his own mistakes and reminding us of the lesson that Jesus himself taught him in Gethsemane, that we need to watch and pray and just to obey. But if Peter told the story so that none should presume, he told it too so that all might hope. It's interesting to note that cursing Jesus in the way that I now believe that Peter did here was exactly what the Christians in the first century were, um, what Pliny, the Roman um, governor, tried to persuade Christians in the first century to do if they wanted to stay alive. He wanted to make them curse Jesus and worship Roman gods. And if they did that, they would live. And if they didn't do that, they would die. And we know that many went to their deaths, but I guess too, some fell. And cursed their Lord to save their own skin. Well imagine you were one of those. Who had cursed Jesus. And you're reading through Matthew's gospel. And you get to this moment. I guess you'd been thinking that there could be no way back for someone like you. I guess you'd been thinking that you must have exhausted God's grace. You'd sinned too often too big. But Peter's restoration preached to them a better hope. John Calvin also said that Peter's story contains teaching. He described it as of prime benefit for the whole church. Because he said it encourages the fallen to trust in pardon. Uh, Peter himself drops out of the narrative after verse 75. He's never mentioned again by name in Matthew's gospel. Or we, our last sight of him in that sense is of him war, uh, going out into the dark and weeping bitterly. But in chapter 28 of the gospel, Jesus, uh, Matthew does make a point of referring to the disciples as the eleven. And with Judas Iscariot dead by this stage, Peter must be included in that number. And it is to those 11, including Peter, that Jesus gives the commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And so clearly the tears of verse 75 weren't the end of Peter's story. They were rather the beginning of a genuine humbling and repentance. We can even say that Peter's denial of Jesus may be one of the best things that ever happened to him. Because for as long as his heart was full of the sort of proud presumption that he displayed when he vowed that he would never ever possibly let Jesus down, he was in great personal danger and of absolutely no use whatsoever to God. But the Lord delights in a heart that is broken and a spirit that is contrite. And so as Peter wept that night, as he came to terms with the objective facts of his own spiritual poverty as he repented 
Well, so he was forgiven and restored. And you know, I think it often takes a mighty crash in someone's life before they are willing to face up to their own spiritual bankruptcy. It's so easy, whether we're Christians or not, to think that we've, we've got something to offer God. But really we have nothing. And it is in learning that lesson, as Peter did that night, that we find real hope and grace and strength. We don't enjoy being forced to face up to our failures. We would prefer to bury them in a locked room and throw away the key. But in repentance, there is hope. Blessed, said Jesus, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Peter was willing to be recorded in history as a prize failure so that you and I might know that today, through the death of Jesus, which is just about to happen here in Matthew, there can be hope for anyone and everyone. Unless that is, we steadfastly and persistently reject Jesus and we refuse to come back to him in repentance. And that's the sad warning we learn from the story of Judas in our remaining time. I'm calling the second point the trials of Judas and the chief priests and saying that it is a grievous warning. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27, the formal decision is reached by all the chief priests and the elders of the people that Jesus is to be put to death. So he's bound and led away and handed over to Pilate, the governor. But then Matthew breaks away again from the story of Jesus to tell us of the one who betrayed him. Let me pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. There's no doubt that it's a tragic ending, especially for one who had been so close to Jesus. And if you've ever stood at the graveside of, of someone who's taken their own life, you will know that you can, you can never fully make sense of everything that has happened. But what we can say here is that although Judas was filled with remorse in verse 3, his sorrow fell short of repentance. I say that because the word that Matthew uses in verse 3 for remorse there is different to the word that he uses for, for true repentance. This word speaks of a, a feeling of deep regret, but that stops short of turning back to God. And so it seems that what sets Judas's action apart from Peter's is not the severity of the crime but the way that they responded to its exposure. Peter wept tears of bitter tears of genuine repentance. Judas had regrets, but he never returned to God. And instead, he chose to take his guilt 
and his self-loathing with him to the grave. And we are bound to feel dreadfully sorry for someone like that. But we've seen them over these last few weeks as a church family as we've gone through this passion narrative of Jesus. That the betrayal of Jesus was entirely Judas's own initiative. And his refusal to repent was his own responsibility. He must have heard Jesus preaching about repentance many times. He'd, he'd heard him offering hope to tax collectors and to prostitutes. He'd said, whoever believes in me will never perish but have eternal life. He'd said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. But for all of his regrets, Judas refused to repent. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that there is a godly sorrow that brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, he says, brings death. And here, Peter and Judas model for us the difference between the two. And what's so sad for me is that Judas knew that he'd done something wrong. He said, I have sinned for I have betrayed innocent blood. He'd even made some kind of attempt to right his own wrongs by throwing the blood money back into the temple. But apparently he never turned back to God. And that is what sets true repentance apart. It's not just being found out. It's not just knowing that I'm wrong. It's not just regretting my mistakes. It is turning away from my sin. And turning back to God. And Judas didn't do that. The tragedy of it all is that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for even Judas's sin. But if someone deliberately and steadfastly cuts themselves off from the only offer of hope in the world. If they refuse to come to him. If they refuse to acknowledge their need then ultimately they have only themselves to blame. So do you mind if I ask you, have you repented? Um, Maybe you know what it is to be forced to face up to your own failures. Maybe you know what it is to regret the things that you've done. Maybe you you know that you deserve the label a, a sinner. Those things are good and necessary, but none of them is sufficient. Have you actually repented? Have you turned back to God and asked for his mercy? For someone here to make the mistake of Judas and take their guilt with them to the grave would be a needless tragedy. A needless tragedy. Because the love and grace of Jesus is sufficient for you. It is humbling to come back to Jesus. It can be painful because it requires facing up to the ugly darkness in our hearts. But it is a safe thing to do because he is good and he loves you and he will forgive all those who turn back to him. I was going to say a few words uh, about the chief priest, but I think I'm going to skip over that stuff. You can ask me about the rest of um, the passage I read uh, later if you want to over coffee. Let me end with a choice. 
I'd never really thought about it in these terms before, but every one of us here is either a Peter or a Judas. I don't know if you have thought that of yourself before. A left to ourselves, every single one of us is a spiritual disaster zone. There is no one here who has not failed Jesus badly. If you look around in a church like this and you see other people and you think they've got it all sorted, they've never failed Jesus. Let me say, every single person in this room has failed Jesus badly, repeatedly and recently. Left to ourselves, we are spiritual disaster zones. If we haven't realized that yet, we're almost certainly not Christian. But if we have, the choice we face is whether we will do what Judas did and take our guilt to the grave, or we will do what Peter did and take it to our Lord in repentance and faith. And the big lesson of today is whoever you are and whatever you have done, there is still hope for you. Peter is the living proof that there is no sin so grievous that you would be disqualified forever from God's kingdom. There is no sin so grievous that you would be disqualified forever from God's service. If you would but admit your weakness and come back to him in repentance and faith. I can think of many times when I've been speaking to people who have said to me something like, there can be no hope for someone like me. God could never accept me. There have been loads of times when Christians have said to me, there's no way I can be of any use to Jesus because I'm just so weak and I fail so often. And to both, I want to say, don't underestimate the power of Jesus' death and don't underestimate the riches of his grace because his grace really is sufficient. It's amazing and it is there for you if you would turn back to him. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great Father, we want to praise you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to praise you that even though he was enjoying all the riches of heaven, he was willing to come to earth to be born as a man, to be rejected, to be disowned by even those closest to him, to be wrongly convicted, to be executed, ultimately to drink the cup of your wrath in place of people like us so that he might offer to us the cup of his blessing and his forgiveness. We praise you for him. We're so sorry that there have been so many times when we have failed you, we have failed your son. We know that for some they will be playing particularly on our mind at the moment. And so we praise you that Jesus' death is sufficient. And that as we trust in him, he removes all of our sin from us as far as the east is away from the west. That he chooses to 
bury it in the bottom of the ocean. He puts it behind his back and promises to remember it no more. We praise you for his grace and the power of his death to forgive us, to wash us clean, to restore us, and then incredibly to use us in his service. We praise you for him. And we ask that you would grant us the humility to repent of our sin and come back to him in faith. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.